did that happen on the th- Thanksgiving dinner that we had here? Was that the Thanksgiving dinner we had here? It looked like it. That was a fun dinner. I was there, and that was, I didn't see these guys doing that, but that was a fun dinner, and thanks for putting up that little uh, bumper before the sermon. How are you guys? I'm Greg. It's really good to be here with all of you. I, I, uh, I don't want to be a consultant on, on, on missionaries or anything, but, but my advice for the Honduras trip would be, if you guys would, would do that in January, you'd probably get a few more takers. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking. I'm feeling called to go where the weather's warm. And there's a lot of things going on around here. I, that app thing is really wonderful. You should really get that. You can keep up with what's... There's so many things going on around here. I bet some of you probably didn't even know that we've got missionaries that are sent out uh, different parts of the world. So you just kind of find out what's going on around here. Um, and uh, some cool events. One I would just like to just mention briefly was that this Friday, the TAP is having a party. If you want the best party in your life, yeah, you got it. Best kingdom party, man. It is, it, it is just so fun. It's just so fun and, and, uh, and beautiful. It's beautiful. Okay. So um, we're in a series here uh, that we're calling More Than a Name, and I'm in the process of discovering that my notes are all mixed up. Um, More Than a Name, I, we're, we're basically in Isaiah 9, and, um, which is a prophecy about the coming Christ. And, and, and we're doing this with a, having an apologetic twist. Uh, apologetic just means giving reasons for what you believe. And so we're going to be talking not only about what this passage says about the Christmas story, about God becoming a human being, but, but also why should we think it's true? And that's a very good question to always be asking yourself. Why do I believe this or why don't I believe this? Um, it, 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 I, I don't want to believe something that's not true. And so I'm always interested in like if someone's got objections to what I'm believing, I want to hear them because I, I, I have a phobia of being duped. Um, and, and, and so we want to kind of lay those out there. And that's good, not just for, well, we're hoping that, that you invite some friends and there's some folks here that are maybe not believers or on the fence or kind of there. I'm hoping that there's folks here like that. And I'll be giving you reasons why I would encourage you to consider becoming a disciple of Jesus. But even for believers, you know, the Bible says, uh, Peter tells us, uh, be prepared to give an apologia. Uh, that, that's a Greek word for, for reasons. Uh, we get the word apologetics from it. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have within and so this is uh, information for some. It should be equipping for believers because you always should be ready to be able to say, well, you know, have you ever thought about this as you're talking with people about Christ? So the passage is uh, Isaiah 9, which says this. For a child has been born for us, a son has given, given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We just sang about it. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. Amazing thing here, this prophecy 700 and some years before Christ is born. Isaiah says that, that uh, the son will be given to us, he'll be a human being, a child will come. But then he says this child will be mighty God, an everlasting father. And so here... Isaiah is getting a glimpse into this remarkable truth that the coming Messiah was going to be more than just a mere human being. He would be the embodiment of the mighty God. We find the same thing in Micah. Um, I talked about this a little bit last week, but we had a storm, so half of you missed it. But uh, it's just too good to pass up, so I'm going to go over it again. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, it's a very strange passage because on the one hand, Micah is identifying Bethlehem as the town where this ruler, this coming Messiah will be born. 
which itself is surprising because Bethlehem's nowhere in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of nobodies. Uh, everyone would have expected the Messiah to come to the city of David, the holy city, the, to Jerusalem. But he says, no, it's going to be that little tiny, teeny, weeny thing in the middle of Israel, Bethlehem. So he'll come out of there, he'll be born there, come out of there, and yet his origin, didn't you say his origin was Bethlehem? Now he says his origin is going to be uh, of, of ancient of days. And that's a Hebrew phrase that just means unimaginably old. And it was applied to God because only God is unimaginably old. He's called the Ancient of Days. And so Micah here is, both Micah and Isaiah, and there's several other Old Testament passages I could point to, are, 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 are getting a glimpse of the truth that the coming Messiah, 750 years later, will, will, will be the embodiment of Yahweh himself. And this is how the New Testament portrays Jesus. When Jesus shows up, um, these disciples, they're, they, they, they end up praying to him and they worship him, but every Jew, every monotheistic Jew in the first century knows you only pray to God and you only worship God. And they call him creator, they call him word, and they even apply four times the title God to him. Uh, it, it's, and what's most amazing about all this is that none of it was expected. At the time of Jesus, no one was looking for the Messiah to be God. They, they were looking for a Messiah to be anointed by God, uh, but they weren't looking for him to be God. And those prophecies that now seem so clear, Isaiah 9, Micah 5, those weren't looked to as Messianic prophecies until after Christ. One of the most fundamental assumptions of the Jewish faith is that God is God and humans and humans and never the two collide or mix. And so when they say these incredible statements, well, people just didn't know what to do with them. And so they just kind of stood there. Once Jesus comes and they experience him and they, they, he makes these claims of divinity and, and, and he lives this life that's exemplary and he teaches with this authority that's unprecedented and he does these miracles and frees people from demons and then most of all he raises, he, he's risen from the dead. Once that happens, they become convinced that this is the embodiment of Yahweh against the most fundamental assumptions of their, their, their Jewish faith. And now when they look back, they can see that these passages were predicting this all along. But they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus because of the prophecies. They noticed the prophecies because they already believed in Jesus, which forces then this very important question. What convinced these disciples that this contemporary fellow Jew of theirs uh, was, in fact, the embodiment of Yahweh? In a context, a social context, where nothing could be more antithetical to their Jewish faith than the idea that a fellow human being was God. And yet, Jesus somehow convinced them, and even convinced his own brother, that he was God. And so, you got to ask the question, what was it that convinced them? I mean, it, it, would, it would take a lot, I would think. I mean, what would it take to convince you that I was God, or that your brother was God? Think of James. What would it take for, what must Jesus have been like to convince his own brother James that he was the embodiment of Yahweh? I mean, I love my brother, but I can't even imagine what he'd have to do to convince me he was God. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Okay, and I'm not, a, I'm not as resistant to that idea as, as first century Orthodox Jews would be. Whatever trouble I would have believing that, they would have more, and yet they believe. So the question is, what must Jesus have been like to have convinced him of this? Now, the disciples tell us. They say, well, it's the claims he made and, and, and the, the, the authority with which he taught and the exemplar life that he lived and, and the miracles that he did, but most of all, he rose from the dead. 
And see, I would think it would take something about that miraculous to convince these Jews against the most fundamental assumptions of their faith that their fellow contemporary was God. And so if, if these things are true, if they're telling the truth, then everything that needs to be explained is explained. If Jesus did all these things, made these claims, now, now I can begin to understand how his brother and other contemporaries would be brought to faith in him. But that's because I'm a Christian. If you're not a disciple and you don't believe that Jesus was who the disciples say he was, then I ask you, what explains their faith? How did they come to faith? How did James come to faith? What was it? If it wasn't what they said it was, then, then what was it? It comes down to this. Either you accept it as true, in which case everything's explained, or if it's not true, well then, then what are your, your alternatives? You got two, so far as I can see. If they're not telling the truth, if this isn't based in history, then they're either intentionally lying, or they're, it's, either, it's either false intentionally, in which case they're lying, or it's false unintentionally. They're, they're sincere, but actually they're passing on a fabrication. They're passing on a legend. It's got a lie or legend or the truth. Now, the legend hypothesis, I submit to you, is a little bit difficult. Um, for one thing, you, this isn't a story that's told long, long ago and far, far away in some part of the galaxy. Uh, this is a story they're telling about a contemporary of theirs. His brother and his mother are among the crowd of believers. Uh, you don't have enough time for a legend to develop. A legend wouldn't have developed about a God-man in the first place, not in this cultural context. This would be the last kind of legend that would develop. This legend would go against everything that the culture believes, and legends don't do that. But most of all, these disciples, at least some of them, claim to be eyewitnesses. So, for example, John says this in the beginning of, of his epistle. He says, We declared to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard with our ears, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Okay, so John is here saying emphatically, repetitiously, redundantly, that, that, that we've seen, we're not passing on stuff that we heard, you know, naysayers or, or what's upon a time or some rumor or something. We witnessed this. We saw it with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. We heard his teachings with our ears. He's not passing on a legend. He's either telling the truth or he's lying. And you can make the same case for other New Testament documents. Uh, he, he, there's no way this could be a legend. So could it be lying? Could they have this fabricated the whole thing, made the whole thing up? Well, the trouble with that, among other things, is um, I mean, why would they do that? First of all, if they're going to make up a story, it wouldn't be this story, because this story goes against everything that they naturally believe. But, but, but why would they make up a story in the first place? Because they would know that they would suffer. You take this message into the world, the Jews are going to hate you because you're blaspheming, calling a man God. The Romans are going to hate you because you're just not good citizens. You know you're going to suffer persecution, and they did. And it was horrendous. In 64, Nero, uh, there was a fire that burned down two-thirds of, of, of Rome. And there was a big rumor all around the Roman Empire that Nero actually had started that himself uh, for political reasons, and it just kind of got out of control. It was a massive fire. Terrible. wreaked a lot of destruction. And so the, the rumor mill was that, 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 that Nero had done this. Um, 
Nero, to, he first he tries to placate the crowd, does what politicians always do. He gives gifts to everybody. Hey, like me, like me. You know, I'm a nice guy. And then, then he offers up all these sacrifices to the gods. He gets religious on everybody. And when that doesn't appease the crowd, he gets nasty and he turns on the Christians. And we have an account of this by a, a man named Tacitus. He's a Roman senator who's also a court historian. Court historians, they work for the state. Their job was to keep a record of all the goings-ons. They were the experts in all the, 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 the traditions of the Roman Empire. And part of the job was to make the emperor always look good because the center of the Roman uh, civility was the belief that the emperor is, is divine, so you have to make him look good. Which is interesting because in this passage, Tacitus doesn't do that. Um, so let, let's uh, read this here. We've got, uh, where are we here? Uh, Okay, but all human efforts, Tacitus writes, and he's writing this right at the turn, going into the second century. All human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, all the propitiation of the gods, did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order by Nero. Okay, so it didn't work. So then, here's what happens. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, and that's just the Latin form of Christ. Christus, from whom the name had originated. See, uh, Tacitus is a pagan, and so he doesn't know that Christ isn't a proper name. It's actually a title. It means the anointed one. But he doesn't know that, and so he thinks it's a name. From, uh, who, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of his procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out. Not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. <laughs> uh, little jab there. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of the Christians who pleaded guilty, and then upon their information, an immense multitude, immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city, for setting the city on fire, as, as, as for being, hating humankind, hatred of humankind. So, here it's a, we've had, we have earlier references to secular references to Christians before this, but this is the most informative one. Um, here, Tacitus confirms the basic historical framework of the Gospels. This Jesus, this Christus, was, was born in Judea, ministered in Judea. Uh, he was crucified under, when, when Tiberius was the emperor, and when Pilate was a procurator. Um, and that's exactly what the Gospels say. So it's secular confirmation of the basic historicity of the Gospels. It also confirms that by 64, uh, this little tiny cult, as the Jews saw it, uh, it had spread out throughout the whole Roman Empire. It's, it's really quite amazing. In fact, uh, from Pliny, we find that there are Christians way up there in the north, in Bithynia, and, and the outer regions of the Roman Empire. They got everywhere in 30 years. This movement spread from 120 scared disciples in an upper room, and in, within 30 years, they're everywhere in the Roman Empire, despite the fact that the population as a whole doesn't like, don't, doesn't like these people. Tiberius hates them, he, or um, uh, Tacitus hates them. He thinks that they're an abomination. And yet the gospel spread. It just shows you that these early Christians were very zealous in their faith. They were out there preaching it, and were willing to pay the consequences for it. Tacitus also confirms this. That after Christus, Jesus Christ, was crucified, the movement broke out all throughout Rome. Now, what's interesting about that is the reason you put the leaders to death is to kill the movement. And Romans were experts at this. 
This is how they kept the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They knew how to squish movements. You go in there, you round up whatever leaders you can find, kill them, and if you can't find them, you find anyone. You just, to, to install terror in people, you, you, you crucify them on the hillside. They knew how to stop movements. How did they miss this one? It makes me wonder what might have happened after Jesus died that caused the movement to explode. When you thought you were putting it to death, you thought you were extinguishing it, it explodes. Hmm, what might have happened? I don't know. Well, the disciples give us a clue. They say he rose from the dead. After he was crucified, he rose from the dead. Uh, he appeared to us. Uh, Forty days they had hung out together. I mean, they were convinced he rose from the dead. And see, if they're telling the truth, well then, that explains things, wouldn't it? I would think it would take something like a resurrection from the dead to turn these disciples who are scared, fearful, hiding away, and turns them overnight into this zealous band of disciples who go out into the Roman Empire and, 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 and preach this gospel. If Jesus rose from the dead, you can explain how their faith Changed. If he didn't, if you don't believe he rose from the dead, then what's your explanation? One of my favorite things to do is to read non-Christian historians wrestle with this question. I love it. Because they squirm so wonderfully, trying to... <laughs> and so maybe they had a hallucination. There's one guy who wrote a book, and he actually proposes that in Galilee, there was growing at that time in the first century a certain kind of mushroom that had wonderful hallucinogenic powers. And so these disciples were strung out on these mushrooms. No wonder they thought that Jesus was God and rose from the dead. I mean, hey, dude, did you see Jesus walking through that wall, man? <laughs> I, trail, I got trails. Well, yeah, wow. And they're going to go out and change the world. Come on. Come on. Got any of those mushrooms, man? The first communion was really mushrooms, man. They're all getting high. It's like, it just shows you how far people are willing to go to avoid the conclusion that he actually rose from the dead, to avoid the conclusion that they were actually accurate when they reported why they believe what they believe. So Nero, to deflect the blame off himself, he pins it on the Christians. And, 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 and it's, he, he, he takes the populist suspicion towards these weirdos, this weird cult, and turns it against them. And it was brutal. See, throughout the Roman Empire, Christians quickly developed a reputation. We get this from other sources. They're later, but they probably reflect kind of the general sentiment at the time. But uh, Christians were hated because, number one, they were subversive. They followed a different king and a different lord. They didn't honor Caesar, and that made them uh, guilty of treason. Uh, they were hated because they're killjoys. Everyone likes to go to the gladiator games where the criminals and the, and, and the insurrectionists get fed to lions and get their heads chopped off. And it's all great fun, part of being normal in the, in the ancient Roman world. And the Christians come along and they say, that is of the devil. And that's like going down to Texas and saying college football is of the devil. You're going to get crucified. It, it just isn't going to work. And then on top of all that, uh, they were accused of cannibalism. Word got out that when these weird Christians get together in each other's household, they say words like, let's eat the blood, or drink the blood and eat the body. Let's eat the body and drink his blood. And people would wonder, well, whose body are they eating? They came up with this answer. Christians would, um, in, in, the, in the ancient Roman world, the father had absolute authority and could decide, had two weeks in most regions, to decide whether or not a baby would live or die. And if the father didn't want the baby, well, then the baby was taken out uh, by the local bridge and thrown in the lo local river. So the Christians would hang out by the rivers all night long. They'd take shifts, hang out by the rivers, and if someone heard a splash, they'd go in and save the baby. And they, they, they didn't think murder was right. Uh, but what happened was when people got word that they were saying, let's eat the, drink the blood and eat the body, that they're eating the babies. No wonder they're going snatching those babies. They're eating them. 
So, so Christians were kind of frowned upon, and Pilate tapped into that suspicion, that animosity, and these, these Christians aren't good citizens, and they're not patriotic, and, and all the rest, and it was a bloodbath. It was an absolute bloodbath. Tacitus writes about this as well. Listen to this, and this is, this is remarkable. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, and Tacitus thinks that Christians did deserve this, they're insurrectionists. But even then, he says, there arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not as it seemed for the public good that Nero was slaughtering these people, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. So Tacitus is a senator. Tacitus is, is, is a Roman uh, historian. He's, he's seasoned. He, he goes to the gladiator games. He's used to seeing people getting ripped apart. He's not like some kind of queasy liberal who feels offended when someone gets hurt. He, he's used to this. And yet even he, this hardened senator, ends up having compassion on the Christians. They were treated so terribly that he and others in the crowd felt sorry for them. And he even criticizes Nero. Now that's, you're a Roman historian. You're supposed to, this guy's supposed to be God. You don't go saying he did it just to gut one man's cruelty, but you can see that Tacitus here is, he's, he's, he really objects to this. He thought he was just barbaric. One of the things that, 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 that Nero did, and Tacitus writes about it, is that he would take Christians and, you know, just to have festivities, he'd impale them on posts and then tar them and then light them on fire. And we make jokes about how these are his Roman candlesticks. That's where that phrase comes from. And while people are being burned alive, impaled on posts, screaming bloody murder, I've got to imagine, he, he invites a dinner party to come along and they're illuminated by this burning flesh. I find this to be unthinkably decadent. I can't... I can't fathom, I, I can't enter into that, but, it, but it, it's historically true. These Christians were tortured in the most unthinkable ways. Now, here's the thing. All of the, almost all of the earliest disciples and apostles were killed in this, in this persecution. And these are the ones who said, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we're, we were eyewitnesses. But if, you don't, if you're not going to believe them, then you have to believe that they were lying because we've already ruled out the legend hypothesis. So try to imagine this. Here's John, and, and, and they get arrested because they're Christians, and now John has to watch his first his wife and then his children get impaled on post, tarred with feathers, and lit on fire. And then he will be impaled on a post, tarred, and lit on fire. And are we to believe that he made this all up and he's not going to crack now? He knows that he's telling a lie, and yet he's going to let his wife and kids and himself get impaled and burned alive? Folks, people don't do that. Uh, they, they, you lie because it's in your interest to lie, right? We've got some liars in the crowd. Why, why do you lie? You don't lie because you're going to get killed. You lie because it's in your interest. You benefit some way, right? You, you benefit from it. There's no, there's no benefit here. There's nothing but negative lost. I, 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 if, I, if you're going to hold a lie hypothesis, I, if I were you, I'd entertain the mushroom hypothesis. It's a little more plausible. <laughs> Why would they die for a lie? And, and the, the amazing thing is this. We've got no record of anyone retracting their confession. It's a, 
If any of the early disciples, apostles had, had cracked, we likely would have known about it because that would have fed the propaganda machine perfectly. Both on the Roman side and the Jewish side, they all wanted to expose this thing as a fraud. If they could have got one of the leaders to crack, that would do it. You prayed him around town and he confesses. It's kind of amazing that no one cracked even though they were telling the truth. Because when you're facing you and your family being impaled on a post, tarred and lit on fire, uh, well, you've got a good motive to lie. And, and so you, uh, it's remarkable that we don't have that. But one thing is for sure, and that's that these folks were sincere. Uh, they weren't making this up. They weren't passing on a legend. So if, if we ruled out the legend theory and we ruled out the lie theory, you're left with, they were telling the truth. Um, at least it's substantially true. Well, we can say they might have got this or that a little thing, but the substance of it has got to be true. Um, and, 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 and so the only remaining question is, how are you going to respond to that? And, and you could acknowledge this reality and bow your knee and surrender your life to him, and I would encourage you to do that. Or you can walk away, but the Bible warns a lot. When you're shown light, to walk away from light uh, is you're walking down a dangerous road. When you surrender to the reality of Christ's lordship, you're now on a road that leads to eternal life. That's the road you want to be on. That's the road you want to be on. I encourage you to seriously consider that. Now, here's, the, here's a really interesting thing. Oh my gosh, it's 12 o'clock already. Oh, Lord, give me the gift of succinctness. Okay, uh, here, here's what's interesting. The thing backfired. This is an incredible phenomenon here, okay? Whenever the, when, 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 when um, Nero tried to squish this thing, annihilate it, that's what he wanted to do, extinguish it, he, he reduced the numbers greatly for sure, but you know what? It actually accelerated the growth of the church. So Pilate tries to extinguish it by crucifying Jesus, and it explodes. And then Nero tries to extinguish it, and it explodes. 30 years later, they're filling the Roman Empire again. It just grew at a phenomenal rate in the most un in hospitable circumstances, it grew at a phenomenal rate. Then Diocletian tries to uh, extinguish it. It explodes. hundred years later, Hadrian tries to extinguish it. It explodes. It's, it's unprecedented in world history. Uh, you know, Muslims, as part of their apologetic, um, part of their proofs, uh, they will say, well, the, the growth of Islam in the 7th and 8th centuries was beyond human explanation. Allah had to have given us this growth. Well, it was, it was an impressive growth, but it was an impressive growth because it was an impressive military victory or a series of military victories. Muhammad, all the Arabs, there was no like organized state. They were just all in these little tribes. And Muhammad got the idea that if we just kind of unite a couple of these tribes, we could take over this whole thing. And that's what he did. And he did it in the name of Allah. And they conquered and they slaughtered and, and, and whatever. And it was impressive if you're looking at just sheer growth. But see... The, the birth of the church, it grew faster, and they didn't use the sword to advance the gospel. They advanced the gospel by being willing to be used by the sword, to be, they have the sword used against them. And that's, that's unprecedented. How does a movement keep on growing? The more you try to extinguish it, the more it grows. And I submit to you the answer is, is this. The, the, the kingdom movement was birthed with Jesus' crucifixion, which was confirmed the, with the resurrection. And the kingdom movement always has a cruciform flavor to it. It always looks like the cross. That's why I always say that the kingdom begins in our life with our first drop of blood. It's in the DNA of the kingdom that sacrifice, self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial love um, is, is, is what advances it. Its very nature is self-sacrificial love. And so when there's sacrifice, that inherently grows this thing. 
It's like Jesus, you remember the story where he, it wasn't a story, it was an actual event, where there's a lady who puts a penny in the offering where everyone else is putting in all these big gifts. And Jesus says, that lady put in more than everybody else because that was all she had. And what he's saying there is it's not, money isn't the currency of the kingdom. Uh, it's the sacrifice behind the money that you give that is the currency of the kingdom. It's the bleeding that advances the kingdom when the bleeding is done out of love. It's when we're denying ourselves individually and corporately for the sake of others. That is the essence of the kingdom. That's what God's doing on Calvary. And when we replicate that, when we do that, it advances the kingdom. And nowhere more do Christians ever do that than when they're being persecuted. For the church is called to, be, to look like a kind of corporate Jesus, a giant Jesus, right? And nowhere has the church looked more like a giant Jesus when, than when the church was being crucified. When the church was imitating Jesus in terms of a self-sacrificial death. And that brings me to the mighty God. I know you're wondering, when's the mighty God going to come into this? Well, here, here, here's the mighty God. Because here's what's amazing. That, I, it's amazing that Isaiah and Micah could see that the, the 800 years from now, there's going to be a person who's going to be born who's going to be both God and human. That's amazing. But what's really amazing is that the one who fulfills this, who fulfills the mighty God prophecy, as regard as mighty God, he's the same one who got crucified. What is mighty about that? In fact, it's not just that, well, the mighty God got crucified, but in the New Testament, the cross is the perfect expression of the mighty God. The cross expresses the mightiness of God. When God flexes his omnipotent bicep, it looks like him getting crucified out of love for his enemies, the very enemies who are crucifying him. That's the power of God. So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, the message about the cross, yeah, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. We proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is the power and the wisdom of God. That is among the craziest things anyone has ever said, which is partly how I know how it's, it's divinely inspired. We've got a whole history of religion. We know, we know what gods look like when human beings invent them. Um, we take the kind of power that we lust after, which is coercive power, power to get our way, power to impose our will on others, power to win, power to defeat our enemies. We like that kind of coercive power. So we attribute it to the gods. And then religion becomes a quid pro quo arrangement where we do some things to please the gods and the gods help us kill our enemies and blah, 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 blah. Been going on since day one. Paul comes along and says, sorry, you got the wrong concept of God. The, power, the, the, the true power of God is God's willingness to suffer. God's willingness to enter into solidarity with us in our sin and in our judgment and to bear it himself. That is the power of God. The true power of God is the power to give yourself away. The way to change the world is give yourself away. Invest in others. Not that you have to become, you know, some kind of ascetic out in the desert or something like that. No, or, or just walking around having nothing. But to have a life orientation that's, that's other-directed. Where you, 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 you notice people, you love people, you're pouring out for people. Uh, th that's, a, the, the essence, that's the essence of the kingdom. And it, it's totally contrary to what the world's always said about the gods. It's, it's, it's insane. But it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. The power of God is expressed in his willingness to give himself away, to sacrifice for the sake of others. Um, and, and see, it looks foolish and weak to the world. It looks so foolish and weak to the world. That's stupid. What kind of God gets himself crucified? How is that mighty? Mightiness is supposed to protect you, not get you killed. Paul says, no, that, the mightiness of God is the power of that cross. And see, it looks foolish and weak, 
But in fact, it's the most powerful force in the universe. You can have, if you have enough coercive power, you can pretty much get anyone to do anything, say anything. But I don't care how many guns you have, bullets you have, laws you have, tanks, fighter jets, nuclear weapons, you cannot make a person love you. You cannot make a person love God or love themselves or love others. You can't change a person's heart. Force cannot change a person. It can harden a person's heart, but it cannot change a person's heart. It's only the cross-like love of the mighty God that can get on the inside and change a sinner like me from the inside out. It's only the, the, the power-like cross of the mighty God that can possibly change an enemy into a friend and stop a cycle of violence that characterizes this, this world. It's only that, 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 that cross-like power of the mighty God that, that can empower people to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. And to see the invisible and to care about people who even are, are, aren't on other people's radar screens. It's only that, that cross-like power of the mighty God that can get on the inside and, 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 and melt the calluses in our heart and open our eyes to see the beauty in the difference of people and the uniqueness of people rather than seeing categories or labels or problems. Only the love of God can, can do that. You can get a law or a rule that says people ought to do that, but Nothing will empower them to do that until the love of God begins to get on the inside. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? It can take a hateful heart and make it loving. That's the power of God, the power of the cross. A hateful heart and make it loving. You can take a racist heart and, and, and make it embracing. Take a fearful heart and, and transform it into something courageous. Take a faithless heart and make it, it transform it into something faithful. Take a, an arrogant heart and transform it into humility. Take a despairing heart and infuse it with hope. Only the love of God, the mighty God that's revealed on the cross, can bring about that kind of change. And see, here's the thing. That's the kind of change. This, way, this love, this power of the cross is the hope of the world. And it's where all, this is the kind of power we're to trust. Because here's the thing. The problem with the world there's a lot of problems with the world, but it's not like we're going to figure this out. It's not like if we get the right policy, get the right laws, get the right armies to win the right battles, well, then things will go well. You know, it's, it's a merry-go-round. It will just keep on going on because the problem is in the human heart, which tells you that all the world's coercive power isn't going to save us because it can't get to the problem. The one power that is powerful enough to get in there is the power of the cross, the power of self-sacrificial love. And folks, uh, that's the kind of power that we are called to, to manifest at all times. Now, here in America, you know, we're blessed. Uh, we, we don't have to usually give our life for our faith. That may change, who knows. But, but right now, uh, it, but we're still called to be martyrs. Tertullian said this. He said that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I think this is just so profoundly true. Now, martyr, is, in the early church, the word martyr just means to bear witness. But it became synonymous with giving your life for your faith, uh, when, when the Christians were persecuted. We're all called to be martyrs in the sense of being witnesses. And we're all called to be willing to be martyrs in the sense of getting killed. Right? We're, 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 and, and you see, that's because this is what manifests the power of God. This is what spreads the kingdom. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The sacrifice of the witnesses, whether you're killed or not, it's whether you sacrifice or not, that is the seed of the church. It's what fuels the kingdom. That's why the widow's penny did more to advance the kingdom of God than all the other money that the people put in there. It's because the currency of the kingdom isn't money. It's about the sacrifice behind the money. It's about the bleeding. It's about the willingness to suffer on behalf of others. We're, our, we are kingdom. Our lives are kingdom to the degree that it costs us something. Put it like that. And that's why whenever the church is coming under this kind of persecution, it's always backfired. It spreads it, because you've just given Christians a wonderful chance to put on full display 
the self-sacrificial love that was revealed on Calvary. And never has the church more, looked more like the crucified Christ than when the church was being crucified. It's in the nature of it. So we are manifesting the love of God, the mighty power of the mighty God. When we carve out space in our budget to include others, instead of having all of our Christmas on ourselves and our family, uh, let's let's include in our budget uh, concern for the homeless and concern for disadvantaged uh, families. That's what we're doing collectively during this season here. Um, That is manifesting the the, the cross-like love of the mighty God. And when you stop doing something you wanted to do because there's somebody in need, you're manifesting the power of the outrageous God. And when you carve out time out of your busy schedule to volunteer, whether it's at children's church or youth or you come to the tap or you go to the lift or, or you have some other place that you're investing in, that is manifesting the power of the almighty God. Jesus completely redefines what power is, what mighty is. I'm sure that what Isaiah said, mighty God, he's probably thinking some military thing because he's, he's writing from that perspective. But when Jesus shows up, what a different kind of power he introduces to the world. It's so radical and so beautiful, this cross-like power, the cross of the power of God, that the vast, vast majority of Christians today and throughout history have not been willing to accept it. The vast majority of Christians throughout history and yet today, when it comes to thinking about the power of God, so far as I can tell, people go totally pagan. They think it's about control power. Uh, It's about I get my way kind of power. Uh, it's, it's, it's Zeus on steroids, you know, control, I want to control. That is the essence of a pagan conception of God. Here Paul reveals that the true power of God is revealed in sacrificing for others, and that's what we are called to do. It's in our DNA. And so for believers, I want to ask, uh, end with this question. Um, would you add, it should be a regular part of our relationship with God and with the Holy Spirit that we're always asking the question, Lord, how would you have me bleed? How would you have me bleed? Um, and to be open to however the Spirit moves you in that. And it may be the case, in fact, it certainly would be the case that as you grow, he'll ask more of you. And I just encourage all of us to always be listening to the Spirit, sincerely seeking the Spirit, and then yielding to the Spirit. Sacrifice, it sounds onerous, it sounds burdensome, it sounds painful, and it can be that. But a lot of us in this room and listening on podcasts would testify that when you break through that, yeah, you got to lose your life, but man, when you lose your life, you find it. Yeah. Amen? And, and that, that life, that life is joy. That life is joy. To, to not be clinging to things, to be free with things, to be really just kind of let go. Man, you find joy. You find joy in that. Uh, I encourage us to really be pursuing that. It's the essence of what we do. How do we bleed? For the sake of the world, to manifest the love of God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, um, I just want to ask you to really seriously consider uh, the, the, the arguments I've put out here. How do you explain the faith of the disciples? How do you explain their courage in going out and preaching to the world uh, when they were so discouraged before? How do you explain how they came to believe that a contemporary, even James' own brother, was, 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 was God in flesh? How, how do you explain that in a context where everything worked against it? And how do you explain those prophecies? Um, God's given us many reasons to believe this is true. I've, being one who's kind of paranoid about being duped, I've looked into this rather carefully. And I, I just come to the conclusion that I got way more reasons for believing this is true than I have for any other candidate to believe out there. And so I'm going to stick all my eggs in this basket. Consider the, the things I've said, and when you come to the point where you're ready to do that, 
Uh, or if you want to find out more about that, uh, come up here and talk. there'll be some people up front who would love to talk to you about what it is to become a disciple of Jesus. He gives us many reasons, but there's still a, f- a decision you have to make. You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink, right? Uh, I've led you to the trough here. Whether you drink or not, it's up to you. And that takes faith. Uh, faith goes beyond reason. It doesn't go against it, but it does go beyond it. It's a decision you have to make. I encourage you to make that decision and start to learn what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Because now you're on the road that looks like Calvary, and it leads to everlasting life. And that's where you want to be. Amen? Would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here. And if you're here this morning, hey, you know what? I'm going to give a hollow you out here, right here. I, uh, I have got a little of that chest cold going around. And um, was, it was, it was kind of iffy today. But we just got prayed over. And I have not coughed one time uh, in, this morning. So, woo! It's, now watch, I'll start coughing up blood here for a second. So if you're here this morning, you have any that could use prayer, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to pray with you. And if you're here this morning and are interested in finding out what it is to be a disciple, come up here. They'd love to explain that to you. As we leave this place, can we do it as a people who are committed to following the mighty God, manifesting the mighty power of the cross to all people at all times? No ifs, ands, or buts. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and do it. Amen. See you next week.